Welcome to Ask the Investigator, brought to you by the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology. The JDD podcast illuminates timely scientific content through thoughtful discussion with top dermatology authors. Subscribe to the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology at jddonline.com to browse the current issue and evidence-based peer-reviewed archives. Welcome back to the latest episode of the JDD podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Friedman, professor and interim chair of dermatology at GW School of Medicine and Health Sciences. This month, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Sherry Lipner, who is an associate professor of dermatology and associate attending physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital Weill Cornell Medical Center in New York. Dr. Lipner is a fellow Einstein grad, though spent a little more time than I did there getting earning both her MD and PhD, as well as she graduated AOA. As mentioned, Dr. Lipner is an expert in nail disorders, including fungal diseases and nail tumors. She's also a primary investigator on several clinical studies utilizing novel treatments for nail disorders, and has authored numerous peer-reviewed publications and numerous book chapters in the area of nail diseases. So we're seeing a common theme here. She's a recipient of multiple honors and awards, including the Women's Germ Society Mentorship Award and the Wild Cornell Leadership in Academic Medicine Program Award. Today, we're going to be talking about her newest paper published in the May 2019 issue of the JDD, entitled Evaluation of Onychomycosis Information on the Internet. Today's episode is part of a new series of continuing education podcasts to be presented over the next year. The series is supported by an educational grant provided by Orthodermatologics. To find out more and to take the online post-test and earn credit, please visit jddonline.com and click CME in the main menu. Participants who earn a minimum passing grade of 70% on the post-test will be eligible to receive up to 0.5 credit hours of AMA PRA Category 1 or ANCC credit per podcast. Upon completion of this enduring activity, participants should be able to discuss the reliability of online information pertaining to onychomycosis and to review management strategies for onychomycosis. She and I have no relevant disclosures related to this study. Welcome, Dr. Lipner. Thank you so much, Dr. Friedman, for having me today. My pleasure. So let, let's dive right in to, to your recent study. Uh, certainly an interesting topic. Uh, how, did, how did you even come up for this? What, where did the idea come from? Onychomycosis is a very common nail condition that I see in my practice. And patients are often coming in with misinformation. Uh, and we were curious to know where they're getting their information from. So the point of our study was to assess the online information about onychomycosis. So, so with that said, obviously there's probably a massive amount of information and misinformation. How do you kind of sift through it? So how did you formulate and execute your study to really kind of pick apart what's out there and, and then of course assign uh, varying levels of, of strength to the whatever's being offered online? So what we did was we used five widely used search engines. We used Google, Yahoo, Bing, AOL, and Ask. And we used the terms onychomycosis and nail fungus uh, were queried on each of these sites. And from these results, we took the first 20 websites for each term, and we had a total of 200 URLs. From these, there were many repeats, uh, five required a subscription, and two were unrelated. So at the end, we had 51 analyzable websites. 
We then used a predetermined pro forma to score reliability based on several categories. And these were accountability, quality of medical information, readability, display, support features, and transparency. So for accountability, we use the Health on the Net Code of Conduct and the Journal of the American Medical Association Standard. And in terms of quality information, we verify this through peer-reviewed papers. For readability, we use the FLESH reading e-scores and the FLESH Kincaid levels. Now, given you know you generate the, a good number of uh, of sites and you have your validated tools, you know what did you find out? I mean, that's a lot of information to kind of sift through. What what was learned from kind of going through these various sites and and the information they held? So there was a possible maximum overall score of 43. And if we look at these websites overall, the mean overall score was only 20.1. So there definitely is a lot of misinformation out there on the internet that our patients are accessing. The accountability was quite varied. Uh, so the range went from zero to 10, but the mean was only 4.9. Uh, and then for quality, again, uh, a mean of 6.4 out of 13 uh, with a wide range. Now, if we look at readability, it was quite poor with only one third of sites meeting the acceptable seventh grade reading level for patients. Were you surprised by any of this data? I was, I was a little surprised. I mean, certainly patients are coming in with a lot of misinformation. I think we've all heard that, you know, terbinafine is going to kill their liver. And <laughs> I wanted to know where all this was coming from. Um, they were surprised that they were getting a test, you know, for onychomycosis. They were surprised that laser can't cure their nail fungus. Um, so in, in that sense, I, I expected to, there to be a lot of misinformation. Um, I think what surprised me most was, was the readability. Um, so most of these websites really were not at um, the seventh grade reading level. Um, so most patients probably aren't understanding the information. Oh, so misinformation on top of misinformation. <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's the multiple levels there. Yeah, misinformation plus readability problems. Yeah, wow. Um, so, so knowing this and, and having this data, because I mean, I think all of us, you know, we're, when, when any of that patient come in with a, a pile of printouts from online, and we, we all joke about Dr. Google, uh, to me, it sounds like from, from your study, the, the problem is probably more significant than we once envisioned, especially identifying that even the incorrect information is presented in a way that many can't even understand the wrong information. Where do we go from here? I mean, we, we joke with our patients about, well, be careful what you read, but really there's, there's a pretty big problem here. And this is just looking at one disease state. What, where do you think we go from here in terms of how we take this information, translate into our practice, and maybe even beyond? So from a dermatologist standpoint, I think it becomes increasingly more important to spend that extra time in educating our patients. Uh, so that means uh, educating them about diagnosis, about treatment options, about treatments that won't work. Uh, giving out a handout with detailed information can be very useful because what they're going to find on the internet, again, there may be misinformation and number two, it may not be readable. Uh, but from a group standpoint, I think uh, as members of the American Academy of Dermatology, as an example, 
um, and myself as part of the patient education committee, uh, I think it's our duty to really ramp up the quality of information um, in these patient handouts uh, that we work on. Readability is quite good in terms of the AAD website, uh, but certainly we've shown that the quality uh, is lacking. Yeah, that's a great point. And I will say, you know, I, I, I'm on that committee also, and the amount, those who don't know, the amount of energy and effort put into even just word selection, let alone content is, is extraordinary. And so I think that's an important point that you need to put a lot of effort in to make these digestible and approachable for all, you know, for all appropriate age ranges. And I guarantee you these websites are not taking the same time that this pretty massive committee is really putting towards making sure these handouts and press releases and videos that the content is really on point at the highest level. Um, and, and the reality is a lot of these websites don't have the resources to do that. Um, do you think, you know, from, from the public education committee standpoint, do you think there's anything more we could do uh, beyond, you know, disseminating the information that we generate in terms of getting, you know, hopefully diminishing um, this, this misinformation that's out there? I think having an extra tab um, with more detailed information for those patients uh, who want it, um, could be very helpful, uh, but I do agree that you know, as a as a member myself and as deputy editor this year, um, it is a, a huge amount of work from from multiple members of the committee as well as staff of the AAD. Um, so, um, but I think we just need to ramp up and and put more information in these handouts. So you know, you mentioned handouts, and obviously, right, the AED is one great resource uh, for for handouts and information for patients. And I think you know, it makes our lives easier giving out handouts, whether it's for directions to how to use a medication about a disease state. Are there any other resources out there specific to onychomycosis that someone could access? Maybe a society website or some general um, unbranded website that that has this information that someone could kind of incorporate into their own or even use um, as a handout that you've noticed in, during your time taking care of this disease? So in our, in our paper, we do have a pretty detailed table that goes through um, the top scores overall, the top scores for quality, the top scores for readability. Uh, so I think it's important to look at those, those overall scores. So websites like MedicineNet, Medscape, um, Dermatology Advisor, um, they're quite good, uh, you know, in terms of accountability and quality. Um, some of them may be a little bit hard to read, but for instance, MedicineNet got a readability score four out of five. So that's quite good. So, so for someone who's, who's read this paper, who's listening to this podcast, what's, what do you hope the take-home message is? What do you hope someone walks away from your study with and, and, and alters their current practice? I think the take-home message is that as dermatologists, we need to really spend more time educating our patients about onychomycosis. We shouldn't assume that patients have Googled the topic and really know a lot about it. Uh, we really need to take the time, explain diagnosis, explain why it's important, explain all the different treatment options with risks and benefits. Great. Well, let you know. Let's let's shift gears and, and just dive into taking care of onychomycosis, both diagnosing and managing. Um, because you're right, this is a pretty common condition. We see it a lot, but I think a lot of us struggle not just treating it actively, but also coming up with preventive strategies and. and you know, it's great to speak with someone who really does focus on, on nail disease. So, so why don't we just start simple when someone comes in and they just have a funky looking nail, how do you start? What, what is your approach to uh, just the 
awkward looking nail, a dystrophic nail, you know, how do you start to kind of approach it, whether thinking, you know, is this something infectious versus non-infectious? What are the kind of the clues? And then what do you do kind of next once you've kind of done that, you know, perform that evaluation? I think it's important to take a thorough history, asking the patient how long it's going on for, are they having any symptoms such as pain or having trouble doing daily activities? Do they have a history of tinea pettis? Do they have a family history of tinea pettis or onychomycosis? Uh, what are their habits? What are their hobbies? Do they, do they swim or walk around barefoot in gym locker rooms? Um, those are risk factors uh, that may predispose people to having onychomycosis. In terms of clinical diagnosis, distal lateral subungal onychomycosis is the most common subtype, and typically that will present with onycholysis, subungal hyperkeratosis. Dermoscopy can be very helpful in the diagnosis of onychomycosis, and the most common pattern consistent with the diagnosis of onychomycosis is a fringed proximal border in the area of onycholysis. So your dermatoscope can be very helpful um, in, in making the diagnosis. However, if you do have a suspicion of onychomycosis, um, I think it's never enough just to uh, eyeball it and then give uh, either a topical or, or an antifungal. Um, I've written extensively about diagnostic testing and, and the importance of doing that. Uh, we don't want to miss uh, key diagnoses like squamous cell carcinoma, amelanotic melanoma, uh, or even inflammatory conditions where giving an antifungal will really not help the patient. You know, you brought up two two good points, um, and actually, it's funny. I've, I've heard others lecture on, oh, you know, we're really good at making the diagnosis of onychomycosis. You know, we can look at it, eyeball it, and make that diagnosis. And I, I agree with you. I think that eyeballing it is not enough. You know, we have some pretty simple tools and actually the dermoscopy, I never, never even thought of, geez, that's, that's fascinating. Um, but you know, obviously doing a nail clipping for PAS is pretty straightforward and simple. And especially if you're thinking about using an oral therapy, you probably want to make sure you have the right diagnosis, but it's you know, a question for you. You know, I've, I've heard some say that it'd be unusual to have onychomycosis and not have concomitant tinea pedis. What are your thoughts about that? I think it's very common to have both. However, I think there are cases where the tinea pettis is subclinical. Um, so it, it's hard to see the scale. It's hard to see any clinical evidence uh, that the patient has it. It's so simple and easy to do um, either clipping or KOH um, or fungal culture that I, I don't see why anyone would ever not do it. No, I, I completely second that. And, you know, and I believe that, you know, that's part of the choosing wisely campaign in terms of confirming that diagnosis before treating what, um, what's your, I guess, you know, you mentioned dermoscopy. What, what is your kind of go-to diagnostic approach? Uh, cause you know, culture, obviously you can speciate, but that can take a while. Do you typically just clip for PAS or GMS or do you, do you typically do both? So I typically see very complex onychomycosis patients. So patients who have failed um, other medications. Uh, so I tend to do a lot of diagnostic testing. So it's not uncommon for me to do a clipping for PAS as well as fungal culture um, as, and PCR, because I need to get as much information as possible in, in terms of the viability of the organism, uh, the infecting organ organism, sometimes sensitivities. 
Um, but I'd say in general for the average dermatologist, um, you know, KOH is, is certainly the, the cheapest way to go and most cost effective. Um, but I think PAS is extremely sensitive and just really easy to do um, and not expertise dependent, at least for the dermatologist. Obviously, it is expertise dependent for the dermatopathologist. Right. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned this a little bit earlier about some uh, misperceptions and, and myths regarding the safety of certain oral antifungals. And obviously, terbinafine usually comes to the top of that list. And, and I would argue some of our partners outside of dermatology, but still in medicine, are, are equally as uh, culpable for spreading that the, those misperceptions as is the internet. Um, what is your approach, you know, when, when you're considering using terbinafine? Um, you know, I remember when I was training, I was told you take baseline labs six weeks in and at the end, regardless, which I, you know, I always wonder, well, why are we doing this if the patient's completely asymptomatic? And I think we're trying to move away from that. But what, what do you do? If you're thinking about using, you have the diagnosis, you're thinking about using terbinafine, what is your approach? So I had similar training to you where, again, we did baseline, we did six weeks, uh, and then uh, after therapy, we also drew labs. So, um, you know, I was always thinking that was quite overkill, but for many years, uh, that's, that's what I did. And to be honest, I hardly ever saw any abnormalities in LFTs or any other lab value for, for, that, for that matter. Uh, however, without some evidence... Uh, not not to do it. I continue to do it. Uh, however, there was a recent paper in JAMA Dermatology, specifically looking at terbinafine courses for dermatophyte infections. So that was all comers, not just onychomycosis, but most of these patients did have onychomycosis. And I think this paper really solidified what we were all thinking to begin with. And that is at lab abnormalities uh, in terms of uh, LFTs, uh, as well as red blood cell count, white blood cell count are extremely rare. Right. Uh, and in that paper, uh, they recommended not doing interval lab testing in healthy adults. And around the same time, there was a similar um, type of study done uh, in children, um, a retrospective study uh, over eight years basically showing um, the same findings, that it was quite rare to have uh, any changes in LFTs um, and slight changes in LFTs can occur uh, in normal children with a viral illness. So uh, aside from baseline, they did not recommend uh, interval lab testing. And, and that's really the direction I'm going, uh, is taking a baseline labs uh, in healthy adults uh, and healthy children. Um, and if they're asymptomatic, um, just leaving it at that uh, and finishing the course. I'm with you. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. I got it. Um, so even, even with that, though, however, I will say that um, a lot of our patients come in with that misinformation already, you know, pre pre preloaded in their in their brains. They have maybe information. They're like, oh, no, don't give me that drug that kills my liver. How do you how do you discuss it with them, especially now that we have this this study, which is helpful? You know, when, when you start getting that pushback or that eye rolling, when you bring up terbinafine, what is your approach to kind of hopefully bringing them back down to ground level and having a real conversation and getting them on board? So, you know, I spent a lot of time educating them about the risks of the drug um, and educating them about how rare uh, those lab abnormalities are, uh, explaining to them that if, if they do see that their skin is turning yellow, 
um, or they're having stomach pains, uh, you know, to call me immediately. Um, but if they still push, 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 uh, I will give them the option uh, to do interval lab testing. Uh, but I think most most patients uh, will understand that probably only baseline is necessary. Right. Now, I, I imagine you, you see more, more complicated cases and, and orals are probably more more, more your go-to, but do you, do you ever find uh, utility for topicals in your practice? Yeah, so I, I probably use terbinafine, you know, more than any other drug by far. Um, I see great mycological cure rates, complete cure rates. Um, I see patients who have the most severe onychomycosis, you know, that after three months of therapy and after a, a year of waiting for the nail to grow, um, you know, their nails are, are looking great. Um, however, there are patients that are completely averse to taking terbinafine, um, or they may have contraindications to taking terbinafine, um, or who may have mild to moderate disease, uh, in which case topicals uh, can be helpful. Um, I really think it's more for the mild cases uh, and patients who have um, few nails involved. So one, two, or three nails involved, not someone who has 20 nails or 10 nails involved. And do you find yourself ever using fluconazole or itraconazole, the weekly pulse dosing? Or I mean, I, I agree. I think terbinafine has the best success rate, but you're right. There are times you just can't use it. Um, you, do you find those to be effective? And you know, do you? you know, I know I've heard nine months. I've heard twelve months of, of pulse weekly dosing for each of them. What What do you typically do when you do use those? I tend not to use a lot of itraconazole just because there are a lot of drug drug interactions. Uh, and you also have to worry about cardiac problems with itraconazole. Um, and that's also a tough conversation to have uh, with a patient. Um, but I do use a good uh, amount of fluconazole, although um, you know, our, our readership should note that fluconazole is considered off-label for the treatment mm -hmm. of onychomycosis. Uh, but I think it's particularly helpful if the patient has failed uh, terbinafine uh, or if um, you do a culture or PCR test uh, and there's dermatophyte as well as yeast. Um, I think in those cases, it actually can be quite helpful. Uh, for fingernails, I generally uh, do about six months. Uh, and for toenails, about 12 months. Uh, but really, you want to wait until the entire nail grows out. Right. Now, you mentioned off-label, which obviously a lot of what we do in dermatology is off-label, which is actually one of the fun parts. Um, any kind of off-label kind of not so well-known approaches on mycosis that, that you've just found through your experience and exposure to these patients have been useful, whether it be treatment or preventative strategies, um, any, anything that, you know, you're just like, wow, this is, this is great. I wish it was approved, but it's not. And, and this is something I, I will pull out of the toolbox when necessary. Uh, so, so one thing that we're doing is we're using a micro clipper device, uh, which drills tiny, tiny little holes uh, in the nail plate, um, it's relatively painless. Uh, and then the patient can just uh, spray uh, terbinafine uh, topical spray on their nails uh, nightly, as well as their feet. Uh, and this is good for patients who, again, may have failed oral, may have contraindications for oral, or who may just not want to use oral medication, um, especially knowing that some of these topicals are extremely expensive to use. Um, so this is a good cost-effective technique, um, and we've seen some good results uh, using this uh, device. 
in terms of other um, onychomycosis uh, therapies, I always bring the patient back after their course of trubinifine. Um, you know, it may seem like a useless visit, but um, in the theme of patient education, I think that's the most important visit. Um, so uh, after they've completed the three months of terbinafine, um, we sit down and we talk about recurrences, which are quite common uh, after treatment for onychomycosis because, of course, the dermatophyte will uh, infect the feet again and then infect the nails. Um, so I tell them to use uh, topical antifungal uh, to their feet daily um, for life, and uh, as well as you know, wearing flip-flops around pool decks, um, and, you know, keeping their nails short, uh, avoiding trauma. Uh, and there was a study a few years ago uh, that showed that those patients that use topical antifungals to their feet um, have um, a much lower recurrence rate of onychomycosis than those uh, that don't. And those patients were only using the topical antifungal once per week. Um, but I tell the patients to use it every day, uh, knowing full well uh, that they probably won't use it every day, but you know, if <laughs> times a week, that's pretty good. Better than nothing. <laughs> do, you, do you utilize keratolytics at all, like urea or lactate? Um, when you're, you know, you mentioned obviously physically making, you know, like little holes or breaks in the nail. Um, do you, I mean, I've, I've seen a couple studies more looking at um, tinea pedis combining like urea with the top antifungal. Have you found that to be helpful? Um, for onychomycosis in terms of enhancing penetration, given that's really an issue when it comes to topicals for, for that treatment? You know, there are some papers in the European literature um, uh, promoting um, that treatment. Um, I've tried it a little bit. I, I think most patients, you know, it's messy. Uh, it, it can chemically debride the nail. Um, so I, I think even if you tell patients to do it, they, they kind of stop after a while. So I don't utilize that treatment too often. Um, what I do sometimes is uh, for patients that may have very severe onychomycosis, so patients with um, you know, toenails that may be two or three millimeters thick, who may have poor prognostic factors such as diabetes mellitus, um, I give booster therapy. So six to nine months after the initial uh, terbinafine dosing, they get an extra month. Um, and there haven't been any really controlled studies on this, um, but it does seem to work in those patients who may not get a complete cure from the get-go. Got it. No, thank you. That's very helpful. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Lipner. I think nails, similar to hair, are a very, a very tough area in dermatology. Um, one, we have a relatively limited armament, but but two, I think, and I'm sure you experience this, they grow so slowly, it, it's really hard to really get patients on board and, and maintain on therapy. And then to your point, um, continuing every day with a topical antifungal, which I, I, I'm sure compliance is not the best. Um, so really, we appreciate everything you do and keep, keep putting out this very important work, both to you know, help guide us in terms of our, our treatment algorithms, but also to make sure the information getting out to both physicians and patients is, of course, at the highest level and evidence based. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so, so much for having me today. And all of you listening in, make sure to tune in next month uh, to the next podcast, uh, the JDD podcast series. You've been listening to JDD podcast, Ask the Investigator the number one podcast for dermatology pearls. Our host is Dr. Adam Friedman, 
the podcast is produced and edited by Emily Lynch-Fries. Our theme music is Design for Life by Young Presidents. New episodes are available the first Friday of every month. Check us out at jddonline.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to talk to us about this or any other episode, email us at info at jddonline.com. Subscribe and review the podcast on iTunes or Google Play, and don't forget to catch our next episode. Thanks for listening.